as you know, I'm Pam, Pam Douglas, and I'm absolutely delighted to have you with me today. So Caridwen Dovey and Eliza Bell, who have written um, what I consider to be an extraordinary book, Mother Tongues. I am really looking forward to a conversation with you about this book. I had thought that you might like to start by telling me well why you wrote it and and in many ways I think that's dealt with too in, in your writing but why you wrote it and how even how the journey has been since it's come out in public. I'm very much drawn to feminist narratives and I'm very much drawn to absurdism I suppose as a kind of mode and experimenting so um, I think you know, for Eliza and I, so much of this project was about experimenting with voice and can you blend voices? Um, can blending two voices kind of overcome the terrible sense of self-indulgence that you have when you speak or write about being a mother? Like how do you take away that guilt and that shame around speaking of your own personal experience which carries with it the history of many many years of this shame being put on women to think that you're anything special just because you made a a baby you know it's the most ordinary thing ever mm, mm. Um, and so I think for us that 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 pushing of the form the experimental nature of the book the way we try to kind of meld voices the way we played with each other's material like we'd often try and put words into the other person's mouth and then adapt it and then give it back and and turn it into a sort of dialogue I think all of that came out of this desire to see if what else might come into view and like what else might be able to be said about this experience if we got rid of that layer of the kind of memoir this is my story and I can only speak from this one place um and then I think also change the the way we sort of time travel through the book you know I think that's also anticipating some of these anxieties around even daring to speak of this stuff um both because it could be you know um repulsive to people but then also because of the sense of you know are we taking up space um in a representational sense that we shouldn't be taking up so it's a sort of doubled anxiety and I think, again, the time traveling in the book and the kind of looking back in these snapshots and scenes into history and then gathering scraps, you know, from uh, generational stories of mothering. And then even in the way that we represent, you know, our own and the other's experience, the fragmented nature of it is also part of the acknowledgement that there is no coherence even in one's own story um, mm -hmm. and that this is not the last word on the experience of mothering but maybe the closest we can get to is a kind of you know this pastiche um, of these scraps over time that have often been devalued and so that's where I think the mm -hmm. time capsule metaphor that recurs throughout the book you know we actually have a whole section about time capsules actual mm -hmm. time capsules and what people choose to put into them and, and preserve yeah, for yeah. the future and I think yeah. in a sense what we sort of saying or trying to say in the book is that we have a little time capsule here that's all this book is you know it's like a little time capsule between two covers and we're just going to put some scraps in there and things that are banal and profound like you know like any time capsule is and then essentially bury it for the future so it may say nothing useful in our own time 
but maybe one day someone digs it out again and and it's there just like we found Susan's book in the lending library outside my kids little preschool and I mean and Eliza and I were sharing books a lot at the time and most of them were secondhand books that we'd borrowed from friends or found in a lending library and so there was this beautiful circularity and this wondering like who put that book in that you know lending library the rest of the neighborhood like somebody out there is also thinking some of these thoughts maybe Mm -hmm. and parenting maybe doing it alone and in silence Mm -hmm. and yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, although we were worried that they were just chucking out there, you know, that maybe a woman had died and some children were just getting rid of these (laughs) books. But yeah. Well, I was interested in the email response you had from Susan um, lamenting that perhaps not so much had changed now. That was really interesting to me, having sort of tracked um, women writers and especially Australian women writers and their efforts to speak you know, the, the transfigurative maternal body. It was interesting to see that email coming back to you from Susan saying, I wonder how much has changed really. Mm. What What are your thoughts, Eliza? I don't know. I mean, I think in some ways it's all gotten probably harder, right? And in some ways it's supposedly easier and it depends on your positioning in society and your class and everything else, what resources you have. But definitely seems to me that there is still plenty of resistance to talking about this stuff. Mm. There's also a lot of encouragement and enthusiasm, I think, from readers who describe, you know, this experience of feeling like something they had been through, you know, is there on the page for the first time. And that's been really a beautiful and very kind of heartwarming thing to. Mm, Absolutely. But so it's, I don't know what the sort of proportions are, but I think that um, there is also some resistance, some maybe potential to be a bit appalled by the detail, the the bodily, the bodiness of it, the embodied experience that gets described, even though it's quite individual. But um, part of, I think what we were asking ourselves as we wrote was what if, you know, yeah, you have your individual and particular experience, but what if we really are in this together in some sense and other women are going through this and parents are experiencing their own version of these things, might that shift how we feel about it and how we understand it and what stories we tell about what it means to be a mother? So I think the answer for me has been like definitely yes. It's so much more fun to write and think about these things in community and in partnership with other people who are Mm. like, you know, beautifully intelligent and um, heart sort of lead with the heart as well. You know, there's a combined intelligence of the mind and the heart in this that I think feels like it has to be an act of community and sharing. And you can't, I don't know how to do that alone. Absolutely. So true too. And I think the, the weirdness of mothering where you are both, in, you thrust into community all the time, whether you want to be or not. And then at the same time, are often left completely alone at the moments of your greatest need. Um, and so you can feel like you're both 
this sort of burden of community and then the burden of solitude simultaneously or I know that I certainly felt a bit of both and I think in the scenes where we're processing mother's group and that the ambivalent feelings of having to perform uh you know birth trauma in front of a group of strangers like 30 mm-hmm. strangers um and how that's normalized and seen as like if you if you feel weird about that there's something wrong with you not with the mm-hmm. structures in which you've asked to tell your stories and so yes. the only those are the only sanctioned places really for new mothers to tell those kinds of stories and yet it can it can be a really unpleasant experience um, and can feel very make you feel very vulnerable and then i i i think it was interesting to try and say okay let's take the experience of writing, which, you know, Pam, as you would know, being a writer too, is simultaneously super solitary and lonely and then has these bizarre things where you're forced out into the world to speak about the book again in front of strangers. So to make Mm. yourself totally vulnerable Mm. in front of a group of people who don't know you and don't care about you. Mm, That Um, whole performative. The performative. um, Thing that, of course, is is a theme that, that recurs throughout. Um, yeah. Yeah. And don't you think that's kind of interesting that these two, well, certainly for me, it's been really interesting because those have been the two things that I've, you know, over the past um, few years, those have been the two forms of work in a sense that I do. And both of them had these strange structural things built into them where I felt alone a lot of the time even when I was being forced into community, into kind of a sense of, you know, being around other people, but not being heard or not being seen. And so for mm-hmm. me, meeting Eliza and beginning a friendship and a relationship where we could have these conversations that just felt like I hadn't had those kinds of conversations with anybody else um, mm. in the years of mm. mothering and actually not even in the years of writing either. So we could talk, we could kind of toggle back and forth between art and mothering and mothering and art and and not in any kind of fancy way, but, you know, again, in the scraps of stuff. But we always were saying something it's significant to life, each other. And it's very rich, I think. But, but, it is, yeah. And, and I'm not always sure as I read Mother Tongue, sometimes... I think, yes, this is Eliza's voice that's flagged, you know, as, as Eliza's experience and her voice, but but other times there's that, that it's not always clear to me, which I guess is how, you know, how you've written it really, sort of letting those boundaries blur, but it's not always clear to me, often not clear to me, you know, whether it's Keridwin or Eliza. In fact, it's really, as I read it, Eliza and you, very often there's that sense of, um, I don't think, unless I've missed it, I didn't find Caridwin's name in the text. Have I got that right? That's right. Um, yeah. But it was um, me and you. And and then, of course, that's, that's sort of fractured in many different ways at different times. Um, did you have reflections there, um, Eliza? Well, I guess for me, part of the experience of motherhood that's in the book is feeling like you're not really sure who, the, what, what is this self? Who are you now that you've had these children or um, you're in this pregnancy or whatever? You, you're, the sense of self is certainly shifting. And sometimes that's really quite frightening. And mm-hmm. um, 
I don't know, I felt all sorts of things about that anger, like the loss of a sense of self that matters to me, but doesn't necessarily seem to matter too much to the wider world, because then you just become this mother thing, which is some code for like, a you know, a person who is self-sacrificing in every way. And, um, but also, of course, joy and excitement and growing and all those wonderful things that happen. But there's this sort of mixed experience of um, real fear at the unknown of that fractured self and changing self and, and also sort of pleasure at the blurring of those lines and mm. the possibilities that might be um, ahead for you. Mm. So for mm. me, that was part of the fun of the blurring or the, the search for the self or the voice in the book and in the writing of the book felt like that experience. It felt like it reflected that. So not just sort of eliding into a different person, like not becoming Caridwin as such, but like yeah. using her view on the world as a lens to understand this in an intimate way, the way that you can with a close friend and collaborator, like we're creating a new way of looking at it together. Mm. And that felt mm. really interesting and freeing to me. Look, personally, I mm. thought that was very powerful. One of the really powerful things in, in your writing in the book. Um, I have um, some quotes here lots of them really from the book as I was reading um, there were um, so many um, sentences that really leapt out to me and I wondered whether one way of sort of doing a chat together today was to bring out some of the um, quotes that that really struck me and and hear your sort of reflections on them does that sound like a, are you happy to proceed in that way um you know I was so um interested in Odysseus. Is that how you say her? Odysseus? Odysseus. Yeah. Odysseus. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, who journeys to the outermost boundaries of the known universe and what she thought she knew about herself. She must endure the greatest trials she's ever known, childbirth, sleep deprivation. Um, do you want to talk to me about, again, this I think really quite extraordinary figure of Odysseus. <laughs> well, Odysseus sort of came out of um, Odysseus came out of an, one of the well, the spark for Odysseus came out of one of the experimental games that we played quite near the beginning of trying to figure out a method for co-writing, and one uh, that method doesn't exist, you know, for for literary work. I mean, we call this literary bio-auto fiction, um, which is an entirely invented title that is mm, also hard to say. It's a new genre. <laughs> it's a new genre, but there's mm -hmm. no, no, we had no way of knowing how, how to do it because it's mm. been, it hasn't really been done to write together. Um, mm. And so we, we, and because Eliza is um, a drama teacher and has a background as an actor, we were often thinking about, you know, sort of more performance things and there's games that she plays with her students to, you know, warm up. And so when we could get together to to work, we would play these games. And one of the games was let's take books off of Eliza's shelf and um, replace the main male figure with a female figure who's a mother and just see what happens. And, I mean, it was very funny, like we... We wasted a lot of time laughing that day, um, but Paul, we also sure it's wasting. The book was very funny in places. <laughs> yeah. I just love that too. 
And we just realized that actually the book still works if you put a mother figure into those characters. So, you know, one of the books that we pulled down was the Iliad and the Odyssey and we were surprised. We sort of thought that they would fall flat once you put like, or it would just be a, you know, silly to have a, a mother figure in, in the main character. But actually when we started to think about Odyssea doing the things that Odysseus had and then what is the meaning of her heroine's journey as, as opposed to his hero's journey, all of the same narrative rules around myth um, and uh, the journeying structure actually work beautifully to apply to motherhood if we could see mothering as heroic. And that's where Susan Mousehart mm. is mm. so great. You know, she sort of yeah. talks about why is this not held up as a kind of epic um, yeah. journey. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you have to exclude anyone who isn't a mother. Like I think the danger mm. around that kind of heroism of, of mothering, it can, it can be negative as well. But, you know, it should still be one of the... Um, you know, methods of telling the story available to us. And so that is where the spark for Odyssea came from. And then we just played with applying um, her to, you know, both the actual tales from the ancient epic and then the idea that also, you know, even Homer is a is basically a, a, a name for a, probably a, a group of collaborative writers yeah um, you know so that's sort of interesting that those stories that have come down to us were made by many people but collected under one name and then the sense of um putting Odyssea into modern day situations mothering situations um and just seeing how things played out and for me that was very freeing I think because again it gave me permission to step outside of my own experience or go deeper into my own experience in a sort of confessional sense and and mm. play with some of those ambivalent feelings that I wouldn't have if I was speaking in the voice of the I. Um, mm. Mm. And she, yeah, I just, she really grew on us, I think, over mm. time. Do you have more reflections about, so are you saying Odysseus rather than Odysseus? I've always said Odyssea. Odyssea. Because I think of it Odysseus and Odyssea. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Odyssea. Do you have other reflections, Eliza? Um, to me, she was really an important strand. Well, I think there's a sort of a um, self consciousness or like a Brechtian kind of justice almost to what Odyssea is doing, where she has this, she's playing the role, but she's also commenting on the role she's playing to us. Mm. And there's, a, there's this self consciousness about telling a story and owning that story and assigning meaning to aspects of the story that I think we have as writers a little bit. And I, I think we're a bit, um, you know, we're, I hope not too heavy handed about that. We're exploratory in our mm. like search for meaning in all of this in the book in terms of our voices. But I think um, that Odyssea has this awareness that you can almost feel like she knows she's trying to be this bard or something and trying to kind of tell like some sort of oral history that has, you know, maybe kind of a, a, a long sort of time that it has to survive. I don't know. That That's sort of the resonance for me there. She's aware of her, you know, this is a big project. <laughs> this is big. We're telling a really <laughs> big story here. It's kind of huge. It's a little ridiculous that I'm here on this couch and got this like little crown that I'm going to try and, you know, leaves, tell the story and be that character, but go with me so that... Mm -hmm. 
so that we can do it together make some sense mm. Mm. um so eliza um there was also commentary around the sociologist arthur frank's um uh i guess claim that there are three archetypes that are used in stories about being ill and of course um, as writers, you're acknowledging that the illness um, metaphor isn't what you know we're doing here, but but that the concept of the quest, the restitution, and chaos is the three sort of archetypal ways to tell these these big stories. Um, and and uh, but Odysseus Odyssea doesn't really um, fit necessarily um, the quest. You know, Joseph. Campbell's concept of the heroic um, quest. We're not really looking at restitution, everything's back to normal. And I really liked it that that you say, um, actually say, so um, motherhood's not like illness and that's not meant to represent the start nor the possible end of a journey. But we're wanting to create here a narrative that is comfortable being at times incoherent. Um, that resists the desire to tie up all the loose ends and body parts with neat bows, that does not necessarily go anywhere. Um, this is the concept of chaos, an epic journey um, that doesn't necessarily um, bring a glorified um, new sense of self, although we could argue perhaps it does, but, but in a way that's not why we're doing the journey, that's not a goal that we're straining towards. Um, and, and you comment that, yes, this concept of chaos, almost like these great powers that are coming up and playing out in my life um, with the conception and, and pregnancy and birth and then, and then caring for that baby. Um, and you and I, you comment here, the writers say, you and I decide this is a narrative that we can get behind, um, you know, that, that concept of chaos. Did you want to comment more on that, Eliza? I just... Uh, well... I mean, life is pretty chaotic, even if you're in a pretty good situation, you know, if you're pretty stable and middle class and in a good family, like relation, set of relationships, all of that, even so it is so chaotic that um, I find it almost like an act of mindfulness to sort of choose to accept that and be at peace with that chaos, make friends with it. Don't push against it. Don't try and order every single thing. Just watch it and get a little bit interested in how the different elements move, um, laugh at it when it's impossible and strange and incomprehensible as much as you can laugh at it, you know, because otherwise there's too much to worry about. Well, you know. that's it. <laughs> I've been interested in um, uh, a, a little branch of psychology, um, uh, I guess, developed by um, people like James Hillman or Thomas Moore. Thomas Moore is still um, teaching um, soul psychology um, that really likes to um, think of our lives in terms of the great powers, the great um, uh, uh, powers that play out instead of um, a journey towards wholeness whatever that might be or to self-improvement or to um, um, getting rid of the depressions or getting rid of the great um, 
emotional states that that you know are a natural part of being human soul psychology likes to to think of of um our life in terms of um those almost mythic characters that that play out that that are at war or in love or um raging or um um you know fruiting if you like so so i suppose when i hear you talk about it about life like that eliza i'm i'm thinking um of and it's it's quite different to the dominant paradigms around emotional well-being and mental health actually so instead of the idea that we need to um, be integrated um, this is the concept of um, living with the stories of the great powers that play out within us and and how does this apply to women going through um, this time of great transformation um, I say women I notice that you brought in some um, gorgeous stories around relationships with with um, the children's fathers um, in in this case and I really like the way you do that too in fact um, there was one uh, quote that I really enjoyed the partner is a steady presence profoundly kind we see them remote from each other like he's on the opposite bank of a great um, rushing river it's too loud for them to hear the other they, they use sign language she does silly dances to make him laugh he's very calm and relaxed and focused on something and, and she can't get him to look at her he never sees how crazy she is I just think that's such an extraordinary um, way of capturing what can happen with with um, our partners during this time of life I loved that section too, and I have to say that was Eliza. Um, and, uh, yeah, I love that little scene um, so much. I can just see those two partners on the opposite sides of the riverbank. And I think it was so important to us that we, you know, in this processing of why does modern motherhood feel the way it does? Like why does it feel sometimes impossible to carry that burden and you know this we play with looking at all the structural reasons behind that and the the, the bigger societal um failings that have you know made it feel like that but we really didn't want to just go for the low-hanging feminist fruit of saying it's men capital m who are the problem and um you know this is this is all rah-rah like anti-men um you know because i think one of the extraordinary things to observe for our generation is that the you know incredible um change in the in the mode and the quality of the fathering that's happening I, I think all that's around I us really have seen in my lifetime a profound shift there and and so i love your vignettes david attenborough um observing um the new mother and the new father in the wild and in that i think it was the first vignette there there's a real tenderness in the way the father is portrayed how hard he is trying you know to to be a good father and a good partner and um i think that is a really profound shift um that we want to to celebrate and really deeply respect actually yeah um, i agree and my mum has said you know that it's just absolutely gobsmacking to see that transformation in just the yeah. general culture of what is expected of 
um, of, a, of a man who is a parent in just one generation. And so, yeah. you know, I know there's a whole lot of other problems to to deal with, but I do think if we don't celebrate that that shift is possible and that it can happen that quickly, I mean, that's very um you know, heartening in the sense of what other changes can we make happen in one mm. generation? Mm. And I look at the kids who are being raised by um, this generation of parents where on the whole, you know, they are getting parented by both parents in really interesting ways that has never happened before in human history. Mm-hmm. What are these kids going to grow up to be like and what kinds of parents are they going to be? And it's a giant social experiment but it's also, I think, a story of hope in these, you know, very dark times. And I, I look around me at the, you know, the kids that I know from the school and, you know, we're um, we're all struggling in our own ways. You know, we're all working really hard and doing our best. But I just over and over and, and again feel like we have to pay tribute to the fact that that mm. change has happened. Mm. Mm. Agreed. I've been hearing my partner lately, the last few years, talking about his friends at work and their children. So they, the yeah. you know, and many of them are men, and they they talk about and share stories of their own parenting and family life in a way that I'm not sure, but I can't imagine was going on to that extent a generation ago. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, he lights up telling me that somebody he works with had a new baby and this is what it she's called and they've just seen a picture and you know it's just a really different level of direct engagement and enjoyment of um family life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's that little anecdote that we put in the book about the amygdala i think right near the end yes um, i saw that yes. siri and her friend are having her ai assistant friend yes, are having a yes. little chat and Very and that's real uh, research right like that's a real thing that um that happens, but it's so interesting that it happens for whoever is doing the hands-on parenting. So it's not about a female biological response. It's a human response to a tiny human. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of, one of the many very powerful um, things that emerge from your writing of mother tongues is, is that that cultural idea of the perfect mother doesn't exist. Now um, I guess, I've watched, um, as I was saying earlier, how we've been representing the maternal body um, in um, women's literary writing, whether it's um, creative non-fiction memoir or fiction, um, up until probably about 2012, where I really became focused on trying to make a contribution in a different area. And so surfacing here in 2022, reading your book, um, and thinking these women are still, you know, we, we, we still have to deal with this. The cultural idea of the perfect mother doesn't exist despite social media, despite what you refer to really is that, that um, it, and again, you're not simplistic about it. You know, there's enormous um, power in the social media sharing, but also even there a real um, loneliness and a real um, uh creation of the possibility that I'm not right and everybody else is right and um so can can you reflect on that maybe I'll shall I ask Eliza again about um my comments there that we still are actually having to deal with with the cultural idea of the perfect mother despite having come so far I mean I'm sure there are like 
thousands of PhDs out there have been written, I bet, about the, you know what what we mean when we say mother and what motherhood looks like culturally and socially, um, and how that has changed. And but just looking around, it's clear that there is still. I mean, the expectations are unbelievable. If you walk out your front door with a baby in a pram, there's this whole sort of way that people are going to react to you. And much of it is really positive and warm and full of well wishes. And that's really nice. But of course, you know, if you have a hot coffee or if you have, you know, if you don't look well or if you have something about you that doesn't sort of kind of fit the description, <laughs> it will be noticed and possibly commented on, likely commented on. And then, you know, that's before you've even gone back to work, if you were working outside the home. And then the the expectations there about how you're meant to handle that. I mean, I've been asked, I'm sure lots of people have, who's looking after your children when I returned to work? And I promise you the men weren't asked that question. Mm -hmm. So there are just these ways that obviously embedded in all that is this code about how mothers are supposed to be with their children all the time and be responsible for them and also be, you know, fit, healthy of, you know, in body and mind in every way and, you know, perfect role model for these children, never yell at them, always feed them, you know, the best food and handle every situation well with wisdom and grace mm. and selflessness, I think is a big part of that code still. And what, um, sorry? And selflessness. Yeah. So that's one that I still sort of struggle with. If the audacity of writing a book that Caridon was speaking about before. Yeah. You know, yes, partly it's about having something to say to the world about being a mother, but then there's also just the like taking the time to do it. Yeah. <laughs> make space in your life for a project that is a like a for the life of the mind and you know, beyond even just paid work that is your job that you might also love and care about, but to sort of have those different parts of yourself all kind of on the front burner feels like a bit of a violation when you have young children. Yes. And it's like all of the, um, it's a strange thing. It can almost feel a bit primal, like the, the surveillance that, that mothers of young children in particular are subjected to. It feels kind of archaic, like it's the old way, you know, and that sometimes it can feel like, okay, it's good that society is still invested in the well-being of these children and that they feel in some strange unarticulated way that they have a say in 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 kind of keeping an eye on things in the public sphere but the problem is when you are mothering in a in a culture where there's very little actual logistical and financial economic um and social support for your mothering it's like you're getting all the surveillance and none of the support so I kind of feel like society doesn't get to have it both ways. Like you get to pick or choose. If you want to surveil us, then give us the support so that we can always be doing the top job when you are surveilling us. Otherwise, you know, you don't get a say in this because you've essentially forgotten that we are doing this work on behalf of all of you. So, yeah, it was, it's... Sorry, Carrie, uh, I was going to say, well, there was that biting little piece Um Again, I was performative um, uh, where there were three authors on the stage and then the, the, the brave woman who had made a choice not to have children but stood up and asked questions in the audience about um, the, the, the structural um, um, factors that may actually 
make it so tough being a mother and that that kind of provide fertile ground then for um, the sharing of distress and um, and and then of course this woman was Silas. Maybe Eliza could tell me a little bit more about that. Um, so the woman was silenced and then the quietest of the three authors um, came up afterwards or they were on the way out and, and they had a little bit of a chat about um, why um, she thought women uh, uh, kind of was, were unable to necessarily, um, it, it, this was a story anyway, they were un, unnecess not, not necessarily able to think about the broader structural issues. Um, am I telling that vignette? Could you could you um, tell that better? <laughs> Sorry. No, that's fine. Um, that section, I don't remember exactly what she says at the end. I do remember she's got a child's umbrella and has to yeah, that's it. apologize for having the umbrella. Um, but there is a sense of understanding and appreciation and gratitude for the conversation and for the fact that this woman has come to make the connection and ask these questions and say something intelligent about how she's seeing motherhood. And that to me feels like the fact that things are so tense sometimes that you, you know, everybody, everybody's um, has great potential to be offended and misunderstood in this conversation. And I, I'm, that's not a criticism. I mean, I think genuinely there is a lot of potential to misunderstand someone's experience and um, perspective. So it feels like, to me, that that section is is really about this um, the worthy and difficult project of crossing those boundaries and trying to connect with and see where someone else is with respect to these issues. And yes, motherhood affects everybody in society. Everyone knows mothers has had a mother of some description, um, whether or not they're mothers themselves. And the the idea that we're all looking after the children of the culture to some extent that's that's it's a shared project for sure so yeah that to me was the beauty of that section that that one author really is seeking to understand and hear the the voice of that person yes whereas the other two authors and indeed the room had had almost shamed this woman for asking about why perhaps what were the, the deeper structural things going on that that made mothering so um so incredibly difficult right mm. um, and there's so, also the sense i think of you know when we've had a interesting response to the book and um have you how, but it's, how has it been received well Eliza can talk about some of the positive stuff, but one of the things that we've sort of struggled with is that people often just assume that only if you're a mum would you be interested in this book. Um, and while that may be true to some degree, but I think, you know, part of the point also is widening out who is interested in the stories of mothering. And I think that that vignette that you've just mentioned is also about saying, you know, every human on earth should be interested in mothering and what it is and how you build a human and what that feels like, you know, at a really basic level, because every single one of us is the product of that. So well, I think natality, 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 not mortality, story of heroism, really. It's yeah. a fundamental um, story. It is. Yeah. 
And, you know, she, um, I think it was Adorno that was, you know, she hated Adorno. (laughs) And I love Hannah Arendt because she had all these kind of like, you know, super brainiac men around her and she just actually her work, she just eats them for breakfast. And, yeah, what a beautiful idea to focus on natality rather than mortality. You know, it's such a different way of thinking about the point of being human. Um, And I think, yeah, it's, um, again, about taking mothering narratives out of the silo that they're put in of, you know, oh, this is a whingy mummy memoir. Boring, you know, tedious. Boring, tedious or, or irrelevant or, or very particular to, you know, a kind of channel of experience. And I think that's also something that we were hoping maybe by doing it differently. Um, and that's, I think, also where the songs come in in a way that yeah, maybe the material yeah. becomes accessible to other people who, you know, wouldn't normally pick up a mothering memoir that's tagged as a straight mothering memoir. But, I mean, they certainly didn't know where to put our book. We had to fight pretty hard for it to get categorised on the back end of bookstores. They have a whole cataloguing system. And, look, I get it. They need to know where to put the book on on the shelves. But we had to fight really hard to not have it be put in the memoir section Um and to not have it be put in the like self-help um, baby can book you, section. Can you imagine going for a like how to be a mother kind of book, like a self-help <laughs> A to Z, and you pick up this? <laughs> can you imagine? Well, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to see your book in that category, but but I must say, I think um, your book has a kind of this word might not be comfortable for you, but a kind of medicinal quality for contemporary women because um, because it's truth speaking, um, because it's not trying to be a single whole, but it speaks from so many rich voices. Um, and because, you know, it, it um, takes us through the journey. I think there's a comment that I'd like to find in my notes again. Um, that, that we can we can survive this. We actually can survive this. So, so we have Odysseus um, there, um, you know, giving giving that sort of epic, most transcendent, but as you say, um, self aware um, 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 telling of the story. And you see, uh, you, uh, you you would be aware that um, the the incidence of of postnatal anxiety and depression um really is increasing it's it's um a significant challenge um for us as a society but there are ways in which i think um a book like yours um actually tells us that that we we can do this and that it is messy and it is it is terrifying but we don't have to be terrified of the experiences of terror if you like which you know that that we can stay with this and um and that we can actually there's no map um but actually um actually we can we can do this um there's there's to me there's something very empowering in um mother tongues that makes me think I would like women to read it. So I don't want to see it in the self-help genre because the self-help genre so often comes out of either the biomedical um, or the, the psychological um, lenses, which are actually very dominant in our society, as you'd be aware. And and um, 
whilst we are very privileged to reap the benefits of, of the best of, of my profession, um, I think there are ways in which um, those lenses, that the kind of writing of our stories through the biomedical um, or highly psychologised lenses don't necessarily help help um, all women. And, and, and a book like yours, I think, really shows another way of thinking about um, our experiences that that it's terrifying but but we it's almost like we don't have to be terrified of the terror because um, even though each of us is so individual in our journey as you've tried to show through a kind of collaborative writing with so many voices not just your own um, th this is this is something um, women have done and we kind of don't know how to do it but but we have done it from the beginning of time, you know, um, and so it's that that the fear of the fear, I think, that becomes paralysing um, for so many of us as women through these years of um, pregnancy, birth, child, early, you know, child raising. Did you have thoughts about that? That's such a beautiful thing to say. Thank you so much, Pam, for just, oh. I mean, that's one of the nicest things anyone said about the book so well, thank I, you i think it's a very profound contribution um and you know as i say um i hadn't been looking for the last 10 years i knew that there was a lot happening in social media but i've been looking i looked very closely up until about 2012 at how women were giving voice to these experiences um in 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 um creative non-fiction and fiction and it seems to me that yours and it may take time. I, I don't know exactly how your book has landed just at the moment in the very early days, but I think it's an extremely profound contribution to um, women speaking of their experiences um, of Thank maternity. You. Thank you so really much. Do. Oh, no, I really do. Yeah, that means a lot um, to us. Which is why I feel quite privileged to be able to podcast with you today. And well, I can see you, our listeners won't be able to see you, but, but, but to hear um, just a little of you know, what what um, went into the book. It was very medicinal for me to borrow your word to 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 go through the process of writing this and thinking about how we might do it and how we might come together to do it. So I know we sort of have said this, but the the experience of doing it together is what it was all about for me and. I suppose there are some people who would prefer to mother alone or in more um, private ways, maybe. But for me, it has meant everything to share the experience and come to some different, richer understanding of my own story because of the context of my friendship with Caridwin and our creative project, but also the the community that we live in and um, the sense of the continuity that we are part of as well. So that has been very um, enriching, I think, in, in, and healing, calming. It has made me feel like better about the whole business. <laughs> well, and that's the catharsis of writing too, right? Like, I mean, I'm really into the psychoanalytic thinking behind why anyone writes fiction. And I keep coming back to the fact that, you know, by you're not just writing a self, but you're crafting a self and that the, the true therapeutic 
kick of writing fiction or something very experimental. It's it's not in the drafting, but in the crafting. So you take all that messiness and chaos that we were talking about and you get to sort of retroactively shape it in some way, even if in the book we put it together in, you know, fragments in a kind of mosaic. But there is something that that does to our sense of ourselves and to our brains and to our hearts to see our experience transmuted into a physical object, um, you know, in the case of a book and to have it outside of the self, you know, all of that is outside Mm. of you and it's this Mm. concrete object. And I think there's something very profound about, um, you know, and I see that happening all the time. I'm mentoring a lot of writers at the moment and I just see it happening with them over and over again and it doesn't even really matter what they are writing um, as long as they do the writing and then they go back and they do the the rewriting and the crafting and and the editing into a thing that has a beginning a middle and an end that can go between Mm. two covers it's Mm. the same catharsis that you get Mm. well in my view you've crafted something that amongst many other things is a gift to women who may be moving through the experiences of pregnancy, giving birth and then raising small children. And I would like to thank you for that. And I think as the years pass, um, the significance of your gift will become more and more clear actually to the reading public. So it's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. And um, thank you very much for sharing this time with me. Well, thanks for listening. It's been great to have your company. And remember to check out the non-profit website, possumsonline.com, for lots of free resources and programs and the publications that form the evidence base to neuroprotective developmental care or the Possums programs. As together, we grow joy in early life. I hope you tune in again soon. Bye for now.